Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Philip, for your introduction. My name's Jez, as Philip mentioned, and it's my privilege to be able to speak today into your teaching series, Blueprint, looking at what the church has the potential to be by comparing ourselves and holding ourselves up against the blueprint of what we see in the Bible, in the pages of the New Testament, with regards to the first Christian community. And to that end, we're going to dive straight into the scriptures and look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what it says. And they, that's the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. Now, as Philip mentioned, I live in Seaford, which is a small coastal town down in the south coast in East Sussex, where for the past seven years I've had the privilege of trying to help pastor a church here. Uh, I have three boys, I have two guinea pigs and one wife. And we love living in Seaford. If you're ever in the area, do pop in. We'd love to say hi and get to know you more. Well, today we're focusing on the final part of the verses that I read. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, where it says, The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, the earliest image of the church that we get in the book of Acts, the master copy or the blueprint that we've been holding ourselves up against is one that shows how natural and expected numerical expansion and growth is meant to be for a healthy church. You see, in his final words to his followers, Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And then the very next step or the very next pages after that we see the christians going and establishing communities of disciples of jesus that were called churches it's a calling then that is on every christian to make disciples to make apprentices of jesus out of the world around us and this is a challenge and a high calling i think it's a challenge for several reasons. Two reasons why I think it's a challenge is, well, firstly, owing to the culture and the society that we live in. You see, according to a survey conducted by the Barna Group in 2015, only 34% of people living in England actually know a practicing Christian for themselves. And of the 67% of those who do know a practicing Christian, 34% of those, that person that they know who's a Christian, happens to be a family member. And what that means is that if you don't know a practicing Christian among your family, the chances are good that you don't know one at all. Which means in England that of the 50% of our population living around us who don't know Jesus, 
if they wanted to know a Christian or to know what Christians believe or wanted to find out about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, they would have no one to ask. 50% of our population, if they don't have a family member who's a Christian, would not know who to ask. In the 2013 film, Gravity, starring Sandra Bullock, there's a a very moving scene where, uh, thinking that she's about to die, her character reflects on her life and faith. And through tears, she reaches out to someone on a radio and asks them to pray for her, concluding by saying, I'd pray for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. Nobody ever taught me how. And it's this heartbreaking glimpse of what spiritual searching and blindness can look like in a post-Christian culture. The author Jamie Smith, in his book How Not to Be Secular, which is a book based on the work of the philosopher Charles Taylor, he says that ours is a secular age. It's a disenchanted age. An age where he says it's as though a roof has been built shutting out the heavens. We've been disenchanted and we can't go back to an era where people were believers in a transcendental existence. But then he goes on to say, however, that every so often through the arts and life experiences, we find that there are these deep longings for transcendence that exist in people and that well up in people's lives from time to time. What's needed, he concludes, is that we in the church get better at doing what he calls punching skylights through the roof for people to see once again into the heavens and to have their wonder and imaginations drawn deeper into a life searching for God. That's our first challenge anyway, the challenge on our hands, the challenge of our culture. The second challenge that I see, at least that I feel and live with day by day in my experience, is more of a personal one. Now, I, I love being a follower of Jesus but I also know that by nature, I'm quite cowardly when it comes to sharing my faith with someone else. I hate feeling like a religious salesman. And so often I find that I would rather keep my mouth shut than risk pushing a product onto someone who doesn't ask for it or doesn't necessarily want it. And the other thing I've found, uh, of course, is that I can't do it. I can't make someone a Christian. I can't change someone's mind. I can't convince someone that they should give up everything and be a disciple of Jesus. And I've tried. I've tried for many years. Uh, Years ago, in fact, when I was a new Christian, I felt the Lord speak to me quite clearly one day and say to me that I'm making you a fisher of men, just in the way that he said to the disciples in the gospel. I'm going to make you a fisher of men, Jesus said. And I I thought, oh, that's lovely. I'd love to be a fisher of men. How lovely. Until every so often I might stop and consider what has happened in the last 20 years. How many, what kind of a fisherman for Jesus have I been over the past 20 years? I mean, I've done things, you know, like we all have. I've preached on the streets. I've uh, posed as a researcher and conducted surveys with people. I've spent... We spent at least five years when we ran kids clubs visiting families and building relationships with people on the estates around where I've lived. I've put on cool church services with amazing advertising campaigns and giveaways. 
I ran a pub quiz in my local for two years to get to know people. I run after school clubs for dads and I've prayed and put on fun days for the community. And you know how many direct converts it's resulted in for Jesus? How many fish for Jesus it's resulted in? Zero. A big fat zero that I'm aware of anyway. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried really hard. Uh, in fact, I've even, even, I've even found myself at times confronting the Lord about this in prayer, saying how, you know, concerned about how little effort he seems to be putting in compared to how much hard work I'm putting in to try to become a fisherman of men and women for Jesus. And if I'm honest, when I consider the size of the task and the challenge in front of us, and when I consider the amount I've tried and the little I've seen, I end up feeling, number one, exhausted, and number two, like a failure. And I don't think I'm alone in this. You know, someone to stand up and say, hey, the blueprint of the church is that people become Christians and they're very evangelistically engaged and the world's turned upside down. It just makes me feel tired, if I'm honest. And I know I'm not alone because I've spoken to plenty of people uh, over the past few months, plenty of Christians over the past few months, who honestly say that they feel guilty, feel like they're terrible Christians. During lockdown, I felt like they failed God, felt like they should be more than they are, felt like they should be more on fire, should be praying more, should be more engaged in church life, in their faith. They should exercise more and watch Netflix, Netflix less, but they don't. They feel like failures. And I, you know, I take comfort from that in a strange way because I know I'm not alone. And that's where we turn again to that verse where it says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This verse, I believe, is life-giving for us if we'll let it if we'll listen to it. Now, a couple of years ago, I had uh, reached another slump in my efforts of evangelism. I mean, I'd thrown myself into the local football club here. I'd, be I'd become a coach of my son's team and I was now playing for the vets, men's vets team. I know, I don't look old enough. Um, but I'd come home from a, a match one day and I started venting about how hard I, it was and how difficult I was finding it to break into their social circles. Uh, how hard it was to get people to listen when you wanted to talk about Jesus. And then after talking for a while, I began to spiral. I don't know if you do this. Initially, I was dis disappointed about a bad football match. But by the end of my spiraling, I was ready to change my name and move to France. It was a pretty good pity party as, as they go. I mean, I'd, I'd handed out party poppers and streamers to my wife and said, come on, let's mope together about how terrible life is. Well, no sooner had I finished my little strop about evangelism, no sooner had I finished concluding that the Lord wasn't building his church in Seaford and didn't care about mission in Seaford and that everything exciting was happening outside of my life. No sooner had I finished that than my phone went off and on it was a text from one of the dads from my son's football team. He wanted to know if I was a Christian and a pastor. Stu was one of the dads at the football club. 
And he was one of the dads that I, if I'm honest, I hadn't really reached out to or engaged with. And the reason I hadn't done was because, well, he looked scary. He had uh, this kind of tough guy, stay away from me sort of vibe going on and he intimidated me. So I didn't really talk to him. Anyway, it turns out that he was looking for a pastor, a Christian, to pray with him and to share his life with which I thought was cool. So I, I met with him and essentially uh, he said to me, I've ruined my life as a cocaine addict for 20 years, he said, and I know that only Jesus can save me. Can you pray with me? Because I feel a little bit stuck. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It said, the, the Lord added to their number. Ah. Let's all take a giant sigh of relief right there. Let's pull this verse apart and start by doing so by considering those first few words. The Lord added. At the heart of the blueprint for the church is the acknowledgement that it wasn't a program or a technique, but a person who gave the church its healthy growth. You know, we love our techniques. I'm sure we've all seen formulas for evangelism and uh, I saw a poster on a church billboard recently, a lovely little formula that says one cross plus three nails equals four given. Catchy. Clever. How different, however, is that from the experience of the early church? See, although the world appears to us to be mechanical and predictable and repeatable, ultimate reality isn't ultimately technical. Ultimately, it's personal. And the reason the world appears to be predictable and repeatable and dependable, the reason the world appears to be governed by laws is because behind it all is a faithful and unchangeable God. Atoms and animals and stars and smoothies all operate according to the principles that they do because God is constantly involved upholding them and is at work in them. We have bought into this idea, I think, in the church that the supernatural world of God and heaven is outside of this one and is up there above us and hell is somewhere down below us. In actual fact, the Bible presents a reality where heaven and earth are overlapping and intertwined realities. The reason that matters for the mission of the church is because the personal God of molecules and microbes is also personally involved in and at work in the lives of people around us all the time. The Lord added to their number. Now there's this story in the Old Testament where the, the prince of the nation, Jonathan, is going into battle and he takes his bodyguard with him and they take on a large outpost of the enemy's army. And Jonathan's rationale for entering into this fight is simple. He says, nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can stop the Lord from doing what ultimately the Lord wants to do, which is to save people. 
Now, I heard recently an interview with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, uh, where the interviewer just rather cynically questioned his um, emphasis on evangelism by saying, isn't all this evangelism stuff just a convenient growth strategy? His response was amazing because without even missing a heartbeat, he said, absolutely not. It is about the heart of God who is on mission, who is on a mission to renew the world. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came with a plan in his mind. And then in Revelation 7 verse 10, we read, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. The, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or here, the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That's the first thing that we see from this verse. The first thing that we see about the blueprint of the early church when it comes to mission and evangelism is, it's the Lord's work. And here are two more things, finally and briefly. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. He added to their number, meaning that this is a group activity. This is not an arena for lone wolves and heroic champions. The Lord isn't looking for impressive Christians to go and take the world for him. No, he's after healthy communities that he can add people to. Years ago when I felt the Lord tell me that you know, he was going to make me a, a fisher of men, I imagined that that meant me heroically pulling in a big catch of fish, having myself photographed with this amazing display of greatness and talent and press power, whatever. Or perhaps I might have imagined myself, or when you hear that phrase, maybe you imagine just a solitary figure sitting by a lake, snoozing in the afternoon sun. Because that's what fishing is, isn't it? Well, yes, but no, not really. You see, for Jesus and for his followers, fishing was very much a community endeavour. And it made use of everyone's role and everyone's gifts. It involved a group of people hauling in the nets and a group of people preparing the fish. You know what's interesting to me is that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were all, are all known in history as evangelists. Matthew the evangelist, Luke the evangelist, Mark the evangelist, etc. But have you ever noticed how different they are from one another? Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They are very different approaches at communicating the message of Jesus. And I run a monthly discussion group together with a friend who's an atheist and we invite people to come and we sit around discussing the existence of God and Christianity, morality, ethics, that sort of thing. My friend is a, a university professor and so quite intellectually wired. And so I remember one evening in particular where in the most articulate and emphatic way I could, I was making my case for the existence of God, intellectually speaking. And it was a good one. I was impressed with myself. I was converted. I was ready to drop the mic and walk off the stage. There wasn't a stage. Walk out the pub. But my friend, in the university professor friend, wasn't that impressed or convinced. And so he asked other Christians around the table what they thought. And he came to my friend John, who's a farmer. And he asked John, in a very matter-of-fact way, 
Um, or sorry, he asked John, and John replied in a very matter-of-fact way. John said, I believe in God because God answers my prayers, and he has done throughout my life. That was it. Very simple. Well, you know, years on, Paul, my professor friend, he still talks about that moment making a big impact on his life. The Lord added to their number, to the community. It requires a community with all of our various gifts and God-given abilities. But then lastly, it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, not those who were saved, those who were being saved, present, continuous, ongoing into the future, implying growth, movement, implying journeying towards a final salvation destination. You see, many of us, I think, have been conditioned to think of evangelism and mission in, with the gospel in terms of marketing and sales. We've, been, we've even been trained, some of us, in how to seal the deal by getting someone to pray a prayer of commitment to Christ. And yet in these words, with the emphasis being on the community, what you see isn't something that is just a done deal, done, move on. What you see is a journeying. You know, I think we can learn a lot more about evangelism, not from advertising executives and marketing and salesmen, but we can learn a lot more about evangelism by listening to midwives and mothers. The life of a church and of a Christian community that's committed to sharing the gospel is a Christian community that's committed to patient and deliberate, unhurried relationships with other people. It's a community of people who are committed to listening to others, to asking questions of others, to being patient with people, to meeting them and taking them at face value and meeting them where they're at. I mean, imagine a community like that one. You see, if there's a blueprint for the Christian life and for the Christian church in these verses, it's, a, it's the keys, I think, are found in the, the words on the page in the, in the verses over the page with words like devoted and together and goodness and generosity of God. It's a community whose heart's inclination is to constantly make room for whoever God is bringing into their midst. A community whose posture is one of inclusion and self-denial in favour of others. Now we're told like, we, like Paul tells Timothy, to do the work of evangelism. But nevertheless, we're to be students, lifelong students and studiers of God's grace and all that he's doing among us. And I think that's the sort of community that is really a city set on a hill that draws people out of darkness, out of the darkness of night, into a place of safety and health and peace. A community who, in times like these of uncertainty and crises, a time where crisis is looming all the time, what's needed is a people who aren't harassed by false pressures and false expectations and deadlines they need to meet and targets they need to make, but a people who live in the constant good and incredible generosity and joy of God, who know that it isn't their hard work or brilliance that's needed, but who know what's needed is to make more of the wonderful reality that the Lord is at hand and that he is seeking and saving lost men and women and that our role, our privilege 
is that we get to partner with him in what he's doing in our communities, in our families, in our friendship groups. That we, might, we hold this up for us to read and to look at and to pray after and to long for. And we say, Lord, would you add to us, to this people, those that you love and are seeking and unsaving, that we might get on board with what you're doing in the world and that we might see you at work in our communities. I want to be part of a community like that. A community that's constantly, as I said, making room for others in response to the grace of God in our lives and in our communities. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you are at work among us. Thank you that you're near to each one of us. You're not far. You're close. You're not above and distant, but you're overlapping and involved in everything that we do. And I pray, Lord, for my friends and brothers and sisters in the church, that they would know the great joy and the great privilege of having the pressure taken off them and of learning that they can trust you in all that you're doing and watch and partner with you in all that you're doing in planet Earth. Amen. Amen. Well, let's respond in song together in our various households.